Keisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of ROAR is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it. A hidden power inside of us. It is a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That power is your ROAR, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I'm excited to talk about how dual career couples can thrive in love and work a timely topic on the heels of Valentine's Day weekend. I couldn't think of a better couple to come and share on this important topic than Tony and Lisa Neal Graves. They've been married for over 28 years and have navigated successful careers that have taken them around the world with large corporations. They are pioneering leaders in the industry with over 60 years of combined experience as executive leaders in high tech and state government, working for such companies as AT&T Bell Laboratories, AT&T Corporation, Lucent Technologies Corporation, Unisys, Intel, and Zio. Tony now serves as Chief Information Officer and Executive Director of the Colorado Office of Information Technology. He leads an organization of 1,000 technology professionals responsible for the secure operation, delivery, and innovation of information and communication technology services for over 31,000 state agency employees across 1,300 locations in the state of Colorado. And Lisa, equally impressive, just completed a run for Douglas County Commissioner in Denver and is the CEO of Trustify Community Incorporated, responsible for driving the creation of AI augmented applications to address racial equity issues. I had the distinct pleasure of getting to know them during my time at Intel. They were instrumental in my career advancement and success at Intel, serving as sponsors and mentors along my journey. Today, they are like family, and Lisa is my best friend. I'm so excited to have them on the show today to talk about how to bravely and creatively craft successful dual careers and rich personal lives while not sacrificing your relationship and values in the process. So without further ado, let's welcome Lisa and Tony to the show. Welcome, Lisa and Tony. Hey, Hey, how you doing? I am great, man. I tell you, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. We're going to have a lot of fun because we always do when we're together, right? (laughs) Almost too much fun sometimes. I know. We just crack up. So I'm just excited to to really just share you with my listeners. As I've said in my introduction, you guys are family. I mean, just I could spend the whole hour just talking about how, how amazing you guys are and just how blessed I am to have you in my life. And so I've learned so much from both of you guys and your tremendous career experience over the years, your wisdom. And so I just thought this would be fantastic to share one of my most favorite couples in the world with my audience on the heels of Valentine's Day weekend, right? (laughs) Absolutely. 
sharing a bit of your love story, but also just your successful career. So why don't we launch right in? You guys ready? Absolutely. Sure, sure, sure. All right, let's get going. So tell the audience a little bit about your background, um, where you're from, and who were some of your biggest influences growing up. So it doesn't matter who starts first, but let's just jump right in. So Tony's going to make me go first, so (laughs) I will go first. You know, I grew up here in Colorado, and I guess if I had to say who was one of my initial influencers, my dad was one of the first 17 Black engineers that was hired at IBM. And he made a conscious decision at that point when he experienced what life was like as an engineer at IBM, that his kids were going to become engineers. And so we learned math before we really understood English well. (laughs) So so I used to tell my um, teachers that math was my first language and that I was a a second English as a second language student. They didn't believe me, but this is where we were. I think from a, a core background, my undergrad, of course, you know, is applied math and computer science. And uh, I went on to get a master's in computer science as a part of the AT&T one year on campus program. And then when I came back, I kept going to school and I got a master's in engineering management uh, because I didn't want to get an MBA because it would have been too, I would have softened my technical skills. And it was really important that time that I stay as core technical as I could. And honestly, um, it was when I joined Bell Labs is when I met Tony. And he was a mentor at that point. And ultimately, we became really good friends. And the rest is now history. Here we are. Awesome. Love that. So Lisa, sounds like your dad played a huge influence in your life. I know your mom did as well, but I love the the foundation of uh, math and science in the home at a very early age. And he was a pioneer and leader in and of itself, right? With, with, with that. Exactly. Awesome. exactly. Love that. Mr. Tony, you want to talk a little bit about your sure. background? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Harlem in the late 60s and early 70s in the grant projects. For, for anyone that knows anything about New York City knows about the grant projects. And growing up there was tough because uh, it wasn't like you see in the movies, but there were territorial gangs out there and things that you had to survive. I loved to read. I used to have to sneak to the library in order to, to read books and steal things from the library and bring them back home to read and then take them back, that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm a mama's boy. I'll, I'll tell you that up front. I was the, the youngest of three. But. Uh, my dad also was was a big influence for me as well. He was one of these types of folks that just would do whatever he had to do to take care of his family. And I found out later in life that he hadn't graduated high school, but was a very talented person, did a whole variety of jobs, worked for the subway system. But he also had a friend of his that they used to own a uh, TV repair shop together. I used to spend time with him there and he would let me fix TVs. Now, this is back in the day when TVs had vacuum tubes. So these things were like, this is like really, really back in the day. This is not current, you know, state-of-the-art technology kind of stuff that we think about today. But I think that that gave me an interest in, in just fixing things and being curious about things. And when I got to high school, I was able to go to Bronx Science in New York a time when they decided that they wanted to integrate the specialized high schools. And so they plopped us into these schools out of our communities. It was very different, very different experience. But I ran into a electronics teacher who 
encouraged me to, to consider engineering. And I didn't know what an engineer was. I thought it was someone who drove trains and I'm right. very fond of trains, but we can talk about that another time. Yes, we we'll definitely talk about your trains. <laughs> you know, that those experiences, I think, shaped, you know, me going into technology, going into engineering, undergrad degree in electrical engineering and a master's in computer science. And it just has driven me throughout my career to, to be interested in technology and fixing things and understanding how things work. So it's been a a long ride, but the, the experiences I had as a child were the ones that I think really shaped who I am today. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. I mean, you both came from very strong families, right? Very strong family foundation, technology introduction early in, in, in your young adulthood, and then just having people that pushed you and motivated you. Sound like you both had some really great teachers who encouraged you around the, the field of STEM and STEM careers, and you just, you just kind of use it as a launching pad. I love that. And I know you do have a fond affection for trains. We're going to make sure we weave that in because I, your trains are different than any trains that I've seen. So we don't talk about that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's just like, just a wonderland in your train room for lack of your, your, your man cave for lack of a better term. But in any case, talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously those experiences that you guys just articulated around, you know, key figures in your life really helped shape you. But was there anything else that you think was kind of that standout defining moment that really helped you find your roar in your career or in life? Yeah, you know, so I went to, I grew up in in Denver and I went to um, a historically black university. So I went went to Hampton. I had met early on, there's a, a woman, her name was Rachel Noel, and she was amazing when I was a kid. And really just a institution in and of herself here in, in the state. She was the first black woman to be elected as a CU, a Colorado University regent. And I remember she told me that I should consider Hampton. And when I actually went to Hampton, it was an interesting time to, <laughs> to have gone from, you know, uh, an environment where it was predominantly white to an all black environment. And I remember thinking, I don't sound like these kids. I don't, you know, I don't dress like these kids. I'm going to, I'm going to go back and, <laughs> and go to DU, right? So I had worked out a, a scenario where um, DU had immediately um, admitted me and gave me a scholarship so that I could come back home if I wanted to come back home. And in order to leave, I had to go and, and speak with President Harvey. Harvey was the president at the time that I started Hampton and, and is still the president. But Harvey said to me, so let me get this straight. <laughs> Your parents drove you all the way out here. So you're 1,700 miles away from home and you have been here all of less than a week. And you're going to let some kids that you don't even yet know make a decision that is going to change your life forever in a moment's notice this is what you're going to do right now. And I was like, well, maybe. And he says, oh, I don't think this is what you're going to do right now. You're going to give us another, you know, give us the semester. If at the end of the semester, it doesn't work out for you, then you can decide something else. And I think that moment, you know, Tony is always telling me, you know, you really just don't care what people think. And I said, no, it's not so much that I don't care what people think. I just can't let people make decisions for me that will change or affect my life. And I learned that from you know, President Harvey, who probably didn't even know that that was what he was doing to my 18-year-old mind, but it, it really did cause me to stop and 
not really think about what's happening around me as decision-making points, but really how did I want to live and what it was, what was it that I wanted to accomplish? And so I think if I had to, that was a defining moment because I hadn't really ever had to consider that before, right? My mother would say things like that and you would hear your parents differently than you hear people who you deem to be in a position of power. And so he was the, he was not only the president of Hampton, he owned a bottling company. He had purchased a bottling company of Coca-Cola. And so he, to me, was both a businessman and, you know, an educator. And so I thought, well, if this person says it, it must be true. Right. (laughs) So, you know, that was an incredibly defining moment for me. Love it. Love it. For me, Lakeisha, I think there's two things. One was in undergraduate. I attended Polytech University, well, it was Polytech Institute of New York back in the day. And as I'm sure many, as many folks of color experienced, I was one of few in, in the class. And I had professors that really didn't believe that I should be there. And one in particular, every time that we would have an exam, uh, he would uh, light up a cigar. And this is back in the time when you could smoke inside of buildings. And he would walk around the room, but he would blow smoke in my face throughout the entire exam. So I proceeded to set the curve in the class so nobody else could get an A unless I got an A. And so he didn't give anybody an A. Uh, But it just drove me to understand that I had to continue to always fight for myself to get whatever I want in my career. And you're always going to have folks that are going to be in your way. I think a positive experience that I had was also while I was working for Bell Laboratories, I had the opportunity to uh, participate in the Brookings Institution program. It's a management training program that AT&T had at the time. Typically, they only sent marketing people and sales folks to that program. But as a, uh, coming out of Bell Laboratories, I was one of the few folks that got a chance to participate in that. And I think that was kind of the switch that occurred for me, the move away from engineering in business and marketing, which really kind of set me on a different trajectory in my career. So it it was it was a very defining moment for an experience to to see real politics, by the way, in Washington, D.C. for a year. But it really exposed me to a whole different side of the company as well. And I think that was the switch for me to say, hey, I might do something beyond just being a, a technical person. Thank you both for sharing that. Wow. Such rich experiences that really kind of shape the next chapter of your lives and your careers. Talking about developing agency very early on and really understanding hey, there's a whole new world of experiences that I'm really open to. I'm open to. So thank you for sharing that. So I want to kind of switch gears just a little bit. I always love hearing how couples met. And I kind of know how you guys met. And so, and I know this is going to be good. So I really want you to share with the audience. Tell us the story of how you all met. Who pursued whom? I wonder. I know. <laughs> and when did you all know that you were going to be together for life? So I met Tony because he interviewed me for my first job out of undergrad. And when he and I first met, he was actually married. And so from my perspective, it was off limits. There was never going to be anything there. It was he was just a good guy. And I was excited that we had black managers right at NT and, and really thrilled that there was a community there because it was so few of us at the time. It was just great to know that we had support. And so I interviewed with him <laughs> And I won't even go into the interview process because it was ridiculous, but I interviewed with him and then I interviewed with his buddy. His buddy was, Tony was a supervisor. His buddy was a department head. And I 
I thought, well, this department head can actually influence how much I get paid for real. So I'm going to work for the department head. <laughs> and and, uh, <laughs> and I know that Tony's perspective, you know, I'm going to leave it to him to tell his side of that story. But, <clears throat> but I do remember thinking as a young person just coming out of undergrad, because I was like 21. So out of undergrad thinking, man, I'm bold. <laughs> just, I'm just going to tell them what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. But it, it turned out to be a really great decision. But Tony? Yeah, well, I felt like chopped liver because she wouldn't work for me. She'd go work for my buddy because he could pay her more money. But yeah, early on, we were just very good friends. But as she left Bell Laboratories and went to U.S. West and beyond, and I went through you know, separation and divorce, I think that our friendship was the thing that continued to bring us together. And I think that's what has sustained us throughout our entire uh, life together is that we're each other's best friends. So uh, it's it's been pretty simple from that perspective to stay connected. And throughout all the things that we've experienced, I think we've experienced them together because we are friends. We joke and laugh and, and have a good time together. And we don't take each other too seriously. So, Yeah, we're friends first. but. I also say that, you know, this is sort of like a, a winter spring fling thing. <laughs> I'm not that old. I mean, yeah, I was like, geez, I'm not going to, I'm not going to quote ages or anything, but I ain't that old, man. And anyway, all right. I love it. I love it. Exactly. This is how much fun we have when we're together. You guys are always laughing and I love it. I love it. That's the key to successful marriage, being friends and just having a good time whenever you're together. Awesome. So what three words would you each use to describe the other? So I would say, so I call Tony my super genius. So I would say he's brilliant. He's incredibly caring, right? And in terms of, it used to be too much, but but now I really appreciate it, right? If, if there's anything going on with me, he is, you know, 100% attentive. I would say the the third word is generous, right? I think both generous with this time with me, generous with this time with others. You know, I, I used to tease him and say that he was the Pope because everybody came to him and told him their story, right? And just expected that he would be able to help them solve it. So he's just a, a generous and kind soul. Yeah, for me, Lisa, I, the first word I would use to describe her is fearless because she has done some things in her career that I wouldn't even contemplate, uh, and I'm sure she'll tell you about some of those as we go on here. So that's the first word. The second word I would use is passionate. I mean, she really gives 120% more to anything that she commits to, and that's everything from our relationship to any of the experiences that that she you know gets involved in or career aspirations that she might have. I was going to use the word caring but as well, but I think a different word that I would use to describe Lisa is thoughtful. She is incredibly thoughtful. When I may have not thought through things as well as I should, having a conversation with her would give me perspectives I hadn't even thought of. And, and I value that a lot because sometimes I tend to be a little too cut and dried or just go for the simple answer on some things. Love it. Love it. I love those descriptions. I Not that I have to agree with them, but I do. So thank you for sharing that because I've, I've experienced all of that. So let's step into your careers because you guys have had amazing careers. So I'm going to just ask a couple of questions, right? You both have enjoyed some very fun and intriguing career pivots, all taking you down some very 
interesting paths. I mean, from Unisys, Bell Labs, Intel, state government. What has been your guiding career philosophy that's enabled you all to be so successful as you make these pivots? So for me, I'm a lifelong learner. And so the one thing that I absolutely require in any opportunity that I take on is that I am learning something constantly, right? Whether that is through customer interactions or through evolving technologies or through just general experiences in learning how to work with and manage teams. And so for me, I just, I don't say no if it's the right kind of opportunity, meaning I'm not going to go and be a chef, for example. That's just not my calling. <laughs> but but, um, but you you're know. good at it. Let's, let's be clear about this. Okay. Yeah, but, she will, but she will call you up on the phone and say, hey, I'm going to law school. <laughs> you know, it's like out of the blue. But I'm just saying. Anyway. Right. <laughs> All right. So I will take on challenges that I think are nexus to a core opportunity. And as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm, I'm a technologist first, right? I started building computers when I was in the sixth grade and programming them from that point on. And so I like the idea of learning about how technology can improve the lives of people and what it is that I can do to help facilitate making that happen. And so if I'm stopped by anything and in certain instances, I was being told no by our legal counsel. So I decided, okay, well, since I can't force you to come down my path, I'll, I'll join your path and see if I can find a path to where I want to go. So I went to law school. But, you know, for me, it really is about taking on the right kinds of challenges that will help create an opportunity to make change that impacts people's lives in positive ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Lakeisha, for me, you know, as you look at, if you look at my career trajectory and my resume, about every three to four years, even though I was at Bell Labs and at and and Lucent for a number of years and then also to Intel, I had a different job. What I realized about myself, frankly, is I get bored easily. Once I figure something out and I understand how to do it, I've got to go find something else to do. And I think that's helped me a lot because, you know, I've tried a lot of different things in my career, you know, in the tech field, you know, communications and high tech, but it's a lot of different jobs. I, I ran a sales and service operation at at and uh, for a few years. You know, again, I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as being a salesperson, but, you know, I went and took on that role because I was curious about learning what did it mean to do it. And so it's, I think that kind of flexibility of being willing to change your roles, try new things is something that's kind of been a hallmark of my entire career. And when I left Intel, I retired and I wasn't sure what the next thing that I was going to do, but I realized I was too young just to do nothing and I don't play golf. So through a bunch of friends, I ended up finding out about an opportunity working for the state of Colorado. And, you know, I started that in 2017 and, you know, fast forward now, I'm now the CIO for the state. Wasn't, wasn't planned. Again, being open to trying different things, I think, is kind of the, the piece that I would say is the, the crux of my career experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lifelong learners love solving problems, love facing new challenges, right? And all to the benefit of the community and people 
um, and making sure that the things that you're doing on a day-to-day basis can make their lives better. So that's certainly been a, a constant theme throughout your careers, I would say for sure. So let me ask, I mean, as we, we've kind of talked about some of the different jobs that you guys have had, the different career opportunities you've had, how did you manage the ebb and flow of your careers, right? And did one of your careers ever have to take the back seat? Because by my account, you both have always been in high octane positions, right? With tremendous impact, um, not just locally, but globally. How did you manage these huge careers at the same time? So I'll start with saying that... Um... Tony has always said he was going to have to have a job because he wasn't sure if I would if I would ever maintain one. Um, what you don't keep a job. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, I think that the way that we've managed our mm-hmm. careers, we we didn't make one any more important than the other per se. We literally just tried to figure out how do we work within the bounds of what was needed to manage both careers. So there was a point at which I was literally spending a lot of time in Europe. I was at the time living in Italy and working with um, Telecom Italia as a con- as a consultant. And Tony was in New Jersey working, but spending a lot of time flying in and out of Europe and in and out of Asia. And so there would be times when our careers were like ships passing in the night. We wouldn't see each other for maybe a month but then we would make it a point, like if we if we went for a full month, then we'd make it a point to spend the week together someplace, whether it was him coming to Italy or me coming back home to Jersey and intentionally staying there for a couple of weeks or a week or so. I think that the, you know, if I, if I think about that navigating process, it was so much easier for me to find, you know, sort of newer opportunities that I was interested in and things that I really wanted to explore. And Tony was less of an explorer, I think, during those periods of times when I was doing a lot of exploration. He was less of an explorer. So I could explore and find opportunities that were sort of around where he was and what he was doing. I think the biggest challenge that we had was when I called him up and said I was going to go to law school (laughs) and we were living in Jersey and I was making the decision to go to law school at CU Boulder Mm -hmm. and we were going to have to figure out how to, you know, sort of manage that. And, you know, to my surprise, I honestly didn't know what was going to happen, but to my surprise, Tony um, met with his manager and his manager said, oh, no problem, as long as you don't mind traveling. And it turned out to be probably the best deal ever because He was traveling during the week when I needed to be studying. He came home on the weekends. I could find a couple of hours that I could carve out and spend time with him when he was home on the weekends. But that was probably, if if I, you know, besides Italy, um, that was probably the hardest transition that we really had to deal with. And the way that we met, you know, sort of met that challenge head on was appropriate for the time and what was needed, right? So I think, yeah, I think... um, we just figured out how to make it work. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, for me, again, just going back to, I mentioned my father earlier, you know, he was a provider and, you know, one of the things he taught me was how important it was to be able to pay all your bills, to be able to uh, have money in your pocket. And even to this day, you know, in this world where everything's electronic and everybody carries a credit card or you use your phone to pay for everything, I still have cash in my pocket. And so, 
you know, I think when you think about careers is, yeah, you know, I, I was always interested in, in doing new things and getting involved. But the more important thing for me was, is making sure that that you could provide, you know, for the family. And so I think that was a kind of a grounding principle for me throughout my career. But, you know, Lisa, frankly, always challenged me to, to take on and try the things that I might think would be outside of my box, right? So I think getting back to that, that fearless piece, you know, having those conversations with her about the things she's willing to try and say, well, yeah, I can do that. I can go try some new things too. But it's been a balance. And, you know, we always, always found time for each other. You know, I think that's the thing that's most important, no matter how busy you are, you know, no matter how stressed she was while she was in law school, we still found time for each other, even if it was just to go for a walk around the neighborhood, you know, some afternoons when I was home from traveling, those kinds of things. And the last thing I'll mention is I, I do have this ability to separate work from family. You know, I can, I can come home or even now, you know, in this pandemic world that we live in, you know, I can spend several hours in our study on video calls but when I walk out of that room, I stop thinking about work and I start thinking about all the crazy things that I tease Lisa with around the house. So. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, though. I think that that's something that has developed even more so now. Mm-hmm. But when we were, you know, sort of going through like living in Jersey, mm-hmm. it would be the two of us and the television on. But we'd have dueling PCs. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, we we worked a lot, but we didn't. It It wasn't at the expense of each other, I think is the deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, the one area that I would also bring up that was very different for us is making a decision to go live in China, uh, living in China for those years. Um, and Lakeisha, I know you were, you were there and part of all of that discussion and how it played out. And even when we were in the midst of it, you were, you, you would visit, you know, a few times or so, but, I think that that decision, when we were trying to go through it, my dad was sick and we weren't sure if he was going to survive. And I couldn't figure out, well, what would that mean to be 16 hours away and he not be in really good health? It turned out, you know, as much as I had been praying about it, I was like, Lord, you know, you have to show us what we need to do. And my father passed. And when he passed, it helped us make that decision much more straightforward and much more easily. Um, and so we literally, you know, b- without mourning, without the opportunity to mourn much, literally, moved to China, no family, no, no commonality in the culture, no commonality in the language, literally um, full immersion and had to figure it out from that point. And I think that that was probably also what was needed at the time, because I couldn't just spend time mourning. I had to figure out how to make a life in this foreign place. So it was great. You couldn't have paid for that education. And I think that that also brought us together closer as well, because we only understood yeah, each I other. Right. Yeah, you couldn't, spend, you couldn't right. go outside and have a conversation with anybody else. Right. So you might as well figure out how to talk to each other. Right. So. Uh, and I, I will also say, you know, when I was talking about Tony being incredibly caring, he always wanted to know where I was. And when we were in the States, I was like, listen, I'm grown. I, I shouldn't, have to, shouldn't have to check in with you all the time. right? But when we moved to China, because it was, you know, 
one point what three billion people and if they missed a few it wouldn't matter <laughs> i remember saying you know i'm in the car right i would call him i'm in the car and i'd get to the uh, the airport i'm at the airport you know and then i call him i'm, I'm on the plane right <laughs> you know so i was giving him blow by blow where i was and it it struck me one day um and i just started laughing out loud and thinking you know here he was just asking me to let him know where i was going and now and I was complaining about it and now I am literally giving him blow by blow every block of the way oh we just passed right <laughs> making sure that he knew where I was at any given moment so I I do think all of that you know sort of played a role in how we framed and matured our relationship and grew together both internationally and locally nationally Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. John, you want to talk about, because that, Lisa, thank you for bringing that out because I definitely wanted to talk about, I mean, that was a huge decision to make. And to your point, the timing and things that were happening in your personal life, and then kind of balancing those, that being the most important thing, right? Versus a career move from a, a work perspective. Talk about how, I mean, I hear you say that definitely brought you guys closer. What were some of the other challenges that you guys faced? And what were maybe some of the the opportunities that came out of you ultimately making the decision to transition for Shanghai, I felt, it felt like, was it two years, three years, two three years? Three years for me, four years for Tony. Three. Yeah. 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 yeah it was time. one of those kind of interesting opportunities because it wasn't something I was looking for. I literally got a phone call from my manager at the time and he said, Hey, Tony, you know how we was talking about, you know, being flexible in our career and you know, taking on new opportunities. I said, sure. He says, Hey, how would you, you know, think about moving to China. And there was dead silence on the phone and my eyes were like big as saucers because I was thinking like, well, what did I do wrong? Why are they sending me off to China? I mean, you know, it's like you're banishing me to another country. I was like, what's this all about? But rather than say no, I had said, tell me more. And, you know, the more we talked about it, Lisa and I, you know, discussed it, it became, again, one of these interesting opportunities, right? And, and Lisa mentioned some of the you know, challenges that we were dealing with personally at the time. But I have to tell you, you know, looking back on that, my biggest regret about being an expat was that I didn't do it earlier in my career because I think it gives you a very different perspective on culture, business, how business gets conducted, particularly when you move to a place like China, where it has 5,000 years of history of their culture. And you have to understand how to interact and do business in that environment and how to lead people in that environment. And so it was, it was an incredible learning experience. The biggest challenge for me was that, unfortunately, working for a U.S.-based company, you still end up having to fly back to the United States a lot. And over the course of four years, that's a lot of 13, 14 hour plane trips back and forth between U.S. and China. But again, the experiences and the things that I learned and the relationships and friends that we have as a result of it were great. And finally, the thing, as Lisa said, you know, we only had each other. At this point, there was no there's no other place you can go. You know, if you step outside the apartment, there's just there's three billion people out there, but none of them speak your language. And so it's it really does force you to to interact with each other and be very intimate and talk about a lot of stuff every day because, you know, it's just the two of you. Yeah, and I think also um, 
any issues that we had because it wasn't like I could call up I couldn't call up Lakeisha and say, girl, this man is getting on my nerve. I had to, I had to deal with him. And, and we learned you really about picking and understanding which issues you really needed to tackle versus which ones you shouldn't or didn't have to. And so there were a lot of things that we learned really through osmosis, right? Some, some we talked about, some we, we gleaned just from interactions. <laughs> but, but I think that experience above and beyond any other experiences that we could really point to, if there was a, a defining moment that drew us closer, I think that was it, right? You know, there the hospital scares. I mean, there's just, there's just all sorts of interesting things that you go through when you're in a culture that is so unlike any culture that you've had, Mm -hmm. that those are the, you know, those, those precious moments when when you doubted everything that you, you come to realize the, the most important person in your life in that moment is your spouse, right? the need to lean in on that, right? I could, you you probably know all of these stories, but I could tell you really crazy stories that happened that Tony's Zen-like, you know, sort of demeanor just helped to bring down the temperature in the room way down um, versus, you know, I'm, I'm pretty hyper. <laughs> and, and, you know, something yeah. happens. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. We need to do something, right? And Tony's like, well, wait a minute. Is that going to be a life or death situation? If not, then let's carry on. Carry on, right? Let's decide whether or not this is really important. I love it. I love it. Well, I know that was just an amazing experience uh, for you guys. And you, you, you know, to your point, you still have strong relationships with your Chinese family, as I call them. And I was so blessed to have had the opportunity to to meet quite a few of them. So a life changing opportunity for sure. Yeah, so Lisa, I know you recently ran for Douglas County Commissioner. Talk a little bit about why you decided to pivot from developing technology innovations to ultimately make our lives better to serving people locally to ensure better outcomes for them today and in the future. Talk a little bit about that, because that was a little bit of a big pivot for you. (laughs) As Tony would say, that was a fearless moment for me. You know, we live in a county that is one of the, I think it's one of the 10th you know, wealthiest counties in the nation, and it is incredibly homogenous, right? So there's 1.4% Black folks here. And when we moved here, like I grew up here, so I knew what we were getting into, but you do have a, this sense of, yeah, but it can't be, but so bad now, because, you know, it's like 30, 40 years later. But I would wake up and initially, you know, I was running the cloud business for Zayo Group. And so I was spending so much time. I really didn't realize how not connected to a community we were here in Douglas County. And then when I started helping Phil on his campaign, I realized how many people I needed to meet to be able to effectively help him. And I it just dawned on me, well, we we need to do better. And so I started you know, the the core of all of this started with me having to drive downtown. And when we first moved here, it would take somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 45 minutes. But when I was working for Phil, it took me an hour and a half 
right? And taking that hour and a half to get downtown, I thought, this is crazy. Who's responsible, right? So I learned that the responsible party was the, the county commissioners because we live in the part of our town, which is Parker, but we live in unincorporated Parker. So we don't have like a town mayor or city council. It is the county commissioners that are responsible for working through all of that, those kinds of issues for us. And so I started attending their meetings and I realized that they weren't really managing it like a business, although that's how we tout it. And then I thought, well, maybe these aren't the right meetings. So let me go to the planning meetings. And I was going to the planning meetings and I wasn't seeing that kind of behavior happening in the planning meetings either. And as you know, as, as business people, you, you're like, wait a minute, where's the data? Why aren't we making decisions based on data-driven scenarios? Um, and so they wouldn't answer any of my questions. They wouldn't uh, appoint me to any commissions because I am i wasn't part of their party. And I had applied to a bunch of them and I felt like I should have been appointed to at least one. And so I thought, well, you know, I let me just go find somebody that can run. And I talked to a bunch of different people who were politicals and they were like, nope, I know this area. <laughs> this is not, it's not possible. And I was like, it is possible. It's got to be winnable. Right. And so, you know, I continued to try to find somebody. And when I couldn't find anybody, it's kind of like what I always said to you, right? If not you, then who? And if not now, then when? So I decided to throw my hat in the rink. And when I did it, everybody here said, oh my God, you're so brave to run. And I didn't know what that meant. Right. I just thought, well, you know, you just come up with a strategy. I know I'm not a political, a politician, right? I'm not a politico. But how hard can it really be? And so as I started this process, I realized and started doing research, there had never been a Black elected in the 158-year history of this county. They had never had a Black person elected. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's crazy. And then, you know, to go a little deeper, you know, there had never been anybody outside of the ruling party to win a, a partisan race. And so I thought, okay, well, this means I'm going to have to work really hard. But as you know, I'm a, a bit introverted. I'm a professional extrovert because I need to extrovert to get my job done, but I'm really introverted. And so I planned my strategy around a 10-month campaign. <laughs> and, and I figured this is exactly, how, you know, I'd done the weeks and how long it would take me to get to all of these different areas based on what the precinct map said and all of this. and you know, it just wasn't enough time. Honestly, I think had I ran for 18 months, it would have been a different outcome potentially because people um, in the absence of knowing who they were voting for, they voted along party lines. And so while I amassed more votes than any Democrat had ever amassed in a local race in our county, it just wasn't enough given you know, the Trump effect as well, right? You know, I had 91,000 votes in any other year that would have been a winning proposition. But in this year, you know, I needed 30,000 more to, you know, get over the gap. So I ran though with the expectation that I was going to use my skills and expertise to really bring about a better county experience. So I ran on a, a platform of innovation, bringing innovative solutions to some of the more complex problems that we had as a county. I ran on building community because we need to, we're much better together 
than we are in creating transparency so that people understood how government was working for them. And then last but not least, Colorado has a water problem. We are one of those states that where others have you know, riparian rights for water, we have a priori rights, which means that you rarely have the opportunity to buy property and own the water rights associated with that property. Somebody else generally owns the water rights. And, you know, that means something here because we're a really dry state. And so I ran on sustainability and needing to have a strategy for how we manage the development and our water use and our wildlife, you know, the open space that supports wildlife so that we can have that as a balanced experience. That's why people move here. And I wanted to sustain that. So I felt like my skills were transferable. And it was one of those things that I, I felt, okay, well, let's try it and see what happens. What's the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> Hence my word, fearless. <laughs> just let's just jump in the deep end of the pool and see what happens. All right. Cool. Neither one of us know how to swim, but we're going to make it work. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, definitely. Just an example of just courageous leadership, right? Just realizing that, hey, I believe that uh, there's some things that we can do differently, right, to, to drive better outcomes. So I'm going to be a part of the solution. And you're right. I do remember you asking me that question a number of times, Lisa. If, if not now, then when? If not you, then who? And so I was like, okay, you, you're right. I'll do it. <laughs> and, and those were times where I'm like, I, I, you know, was hesitant at first, but it was really the best thing I could have ever done. So I, I will never forget the, those questions that you posed to me and really how it was, you know, really transformative, not just for my career, but from for me personally. So thank you for that. And Mr. Tony, I know you, right? I mean, to Lisa's point, you know, you guys have phenomenal skills and expertise and it's directly transferable and you've transferred that, right? To working in Colorado's broadband office as executive director and now CIO on top of that. So just have a little bit briefly around why the move in that space. I mean, obviously you were asked, but you also had to be compelled to say, you know, I'm going to come out of retirement and do this. And why was it important for you to really make sure that you know, the state residents, and especially in the rural areas, had access to broadband. Yeah, it, it was really that experience of understanding the challenge that people are faced with, with physically getting connected to the internet that sort of got me involved. It was, again, you know, I became intrigued with the whole problem statement. And as, as you mentioned, in the rural communities, it's just a lack of infrastructure because, you know, if you look at this as purely a commercial venture, you can't make the math work in terms of a business case. And so that's why people don't build the infrastructure to support rural communities. As I got further into it, you start to understand that there's other issues associated with it as well. Because even if you have the physical access, if you can't afford it because it's too expensive, you have to make a trade-off between, you know, buying groceries or whether or not your, your child has access to the internet to do their homework. Well, that's a tough choice you have to make. And so it's it's expanded for me into a whole another set of issues around equity and whether or not children have access to equipment to connect to the internet. And it just goes on and on and on. And so those are ongoing conversations. And my role expanded to being the state CIO because I have to admit when I joined government. I had all of the isms that all of us typically have about government that is bureaucratic, that folks really aren't trying to make a difference. But I have to tell you that everybody that I've met are very passionately involved in wanting to make a difference and trying to help. And so it's motivated me to get more and more involved. And so hence, 
you know, the governor appointed me as CIO back in November to uh, help really change the experience that citizens have with state government and leverage technology to do that and make it easier for you to gain access to all kinds of state services. And so that that's that's what's motivating me now. And I'll keep going so long as I continue to be interested in trying to solve that problem. And I have to add, so Tony is really modest. Let me just say that the governor appointed him also because the team needed a different style of leader. And when he was appointed, you know, most people, <laughs> the manager sends like the staff gifts. When Tony was appointed, his staff was sending gifts to the house. We're so glad you're here. <laughs> when have I ever got a you know, I mean, like, seriously, this is ridiculous. So, you know, it's just to say that he's he this is who he is. He's a good guy. Generous. Very much so. Very much so. I mean, I, I know uh, at our time at Intel, Lisa, both you guys were probably one of the most highly sought after executive leaders across the company for all communities, but especially for the African-American community. And Mr. Tony and Lisa's phone number was on speed dial. Right. And you never said no. You always said yes. And so the community was better because of it. So thank you for sharing that, Lisa. Now, I know I can talk to you guys all day, but I know you got another meeting. Yes, to get to. And so I want to just ask maybe one more question and then we'll kind of wrap up with the fun lightning round of questions. And so just to kind of put a ribbon on this, you guys have given some great advice and really shared your stories, how you navigate your career, how you just kept a very strong, healthy marriage and family life. So maybe what advice, what are a couple, two or three things that you guys want to, to leave with the audience around, you know, balancing work and love life, right? And, and balancing two high powered careers. Anything you want to give us in in terms of a couple of key takeaways that we should keep at the forefront of our minds? Yeah. So I will say that I haven't met a person yet who on their deathbed said, I wish I had worked a few more hours. Right. And so I think that it is so important that those who you love know it and they know it because you choose them when there's a choice to be made. Right. So when there's an opportunity to spend time and you could spend that time in multiple ways. If there isn't a way to spend that time jointly, then you should choose your mate. The other thing that I would also say is that we are so tied to what we think are the right things that we're supposed to do that we don't really consider really what God is driving us to do. And I'm pretty spiritually driven and I want to be aligned with what I'm supposed to be doing that, what I desire to be doing. And so while there are a lot of things that I could possibly do, I constantly pray that those things that kind of seem to show up more and more are things that I am being driven by God to do and not just driven by Lisa. So. Yeah, I'm not sure if I could add much to that other than, you know, I've tried to, as Lisa says, stay humble in terms of understanding that you can learn from anyone and don't ever go through your life thinking that you've, you've figured it all out, you know? And when that person that you don't know who may be in a very different place in their life and career and the things that they're doing, slow down long enough to talk to that person and get to know them and kind of hear from them and hear their side of, and their perspective. And I will guarantee you that you will probably learn something you didn't know. That's the way that I try to live my life is I believe that I'm going to learn from every interaction that I have. 
And so it makes you pause. It makes you slow down. It makes you realize that, you know, I don't know everything and I can always learn to do something better or gain a new insight from, from that conversation that you're having with that individual. And I think that's potentially what attracts people to me, as Lisa said earlier, everyone, you know, comes and talks to me like I'm the Pope, but I think it's just the, you know, the, the willingness to just listen and, you know, not judge, you know, an individual. I love it. I love it. So I'll wrap up very, very quickly and I won't hit them all because I know we're pressing up against time, but I'll say a word or a phrase and you guys tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Favorite food? Spaghetti. <laughs> okay. Lisa? Salmon. No, salmon. salmon. Okay. All right. Guilty pleasure? Chocolate. <laughs> chocolate? <laughs> yes, chocolate. Oh. Yes, chocolate. Yes, yes, yes I love chocolate. it. Yes. Followed by chocolate. Yeah. Okay. Mm, I know. I know. Okay. So current Netflix addiction or TV shows that you're going to dial into when you get a moment to relax. Industry. Industry. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't want enough TV. <laughs> but, you know, I will also, I will also say, so Tony does watch TV. He just watches the shows that I'm watching. Um, but Bridgerton was a, a really good show as well. I, I'm waiting for the, the next editions. I know that's right. Dream vacation, when we can travel again, where are you guys going? I know you guys like to stay home a lot, but we're to just to relax. Maldives, Maldives. Yeah. I want to go to the Maldives. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Jamaica, but I'll, I'll, I can do Maldives. That's going to work too. Yeah, both of those are amazing. And last thing, favorite book or book you guys are reading right now? Mm, so a book that I am reading right now, there's a couple. One is The Inner Works of Racial Justice. And then... I am reading along with um, a group of people the how to be an anti-racist. Mm-hmm. But you know my my favorite <laughs> my favorite is you know sort of the leisure reading. So it would be any Eric Jerome Dickey book, any of them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a fan. So yeah, for me topically right now, I'm actually involved in the five dysfunctions of a team because I'm developing my staff as, as the new CIO. And beyond that, I read a lot of trains magazines and model railroading, and I'm into HO trains. And so I have this huge room in the house. It's, as you described it, is my man cave, and that's where all my trains are. So that, that's, that's what I do. I read that, and I'm trying to uh, develop a team. It is the biggest room in the house that contains that train. Well, of course. <laughs> It is a marvel. It's just a sight to see. I love it. Many times when I'm visiting, we always find Mr. Tony in that room having a good old time. So I tell you, this has been awesome, guys. Thank you so much for just coming and sharing on the Roar podcast today. I really, really appreciate it. Love you guys dearly. Love you too. too. Take care, Lakeisha. Talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 